1: Facebook had a brief reprieve yesterday, but shares are down nearly 1 percent again today after losing nearly 14 percent of their shares last week. Here to join us to talk a little bit about a behind the scenes look at how Facebook approached marketing and how they attracted certain hmm, shady advertisers is Robert Friedman, senior editor on the projects and investigations team here at Bloomberg News. Uh, This is an amazing story. It's going to be in business week it's written by zeke fox i recommend everybody read it can you just give us a sense of where it begins this conference uh, and why it's notable
2: well uh, zeke is uh, on a well-deserved vacation this week um uh, so i'm here to uh to speak for him this story has been in the works for over a year um, and uh, zeke came to me last spring and said i want to go to this conference in berlin for affiliate marketers And I said, what is that?
1: (laughs) You just want to go to Berlin and drink.
2: And then he said, and there's also an after party in Ibiza, which I want to go to. And I said, Zeke, are you scamming me? and um, but um, the more he told me about this strange world of affiliate marketing um i uh, the more I got interested. So affiliate marketing is basically just a bunch of middlemen who buy clicks and views from Facebook and sell them to people who try to sell stuff. A lot of it's legitimate, um plenty of companies use this uh, as an advertising tool, but um all the um the shady advertisers who sell uh, stuff through you know free iPhone offers or diet pills approved by uh, uh, Oprah Winfrey or Elon Musk's um, uh, smart pills, um, fake endorsements, um, stuff that pops up and pollutes your, your, um, your internet uh, experience, um, they all actually um, take advantage of this affiliate marketing deal. And they all congregate around this conference, which is hosted by a suspiciously-sounded group called Stack That Money. <laughs> So, <laughs> Zeke, Zeke, stack that money. Z- stack that money. So Zeke went out there, and the first thing he noticed was all the Facebook people that were there. They were on stage, they were uh, moderating panels, they were out mingling with the uh, with the crowds. And he said, "What is going on here?" And um, uh, and thus began an investigation into the strange relationship between these uh, affiliate marketers and Facebook. Um, Facebook, um, as you know, has built a very very powerful uh, tool. Uh, to target people, um, and, and based on all the data that you and I and everybody else gives them, uh, 2.2 billion people. And the advertising uh, community figured out pretty qu- uh, quickly that this was a valuable tool to, for them to let Facebook find the suckers for them. And that began this uh, this adventure.
1: Okay, so uh, this sort of brings us to a fork in the uh, metaphorical road here for Facebook. Because on one hand, uh, they have said that they try to ferret at- out bad actors, people who are trying to sell miracle pills that don't work, or iPhone uh, iPhones that are free that end up charging you $86 a month for the rest of your life. Um, I'm just wondering what they knew about the bad actors, what they did to stop them? Or is there evidence that they've been actively recruiting them?
2: So Facebook has certain rules about things you're not supposed to advertise on the, on, on it. And they have reviewers who uh, somewhere overseas are reviewing uh, content. And uh, for years, they had a very small skeletal crew of three engineers that were set to sort of Combat this, uh, you know, fraud on uh, advertising fraud, but it was a half-hearted effort. And at the same time, their marketing people were attending conferences and uh, and recruiting, uh, trying to sell these ads. It's hundreds of millions of dollars of advertising revenue. So they had a, they had at best a complicated, um, bifurcated relationship with uh, with this world. But they were looking the other way. In 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 my view, it's only recently, in the last year. That they're beginning to take this more seriously. They hired a new person to sort of uh, come up with, uh, and they've they and lots more reviewers, and they've done. But the 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 ad scammers are smart, and they have uh, developed a uh, a program, and that's in, in this story. Um, uh, a guy named Rob Grin, who became sort of the king of these affiliate marketers, developed a program that allowed you to cloak your ads. Um, cloaking means that when they, they, they can figure out when a facebook reviewer is reviewing the ad and when they and the facebook reviewer clicks on the ad they get an innocuous um, landing page but wow. everybody else falls on a uh, on 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 the actual uh scam ad so so um they were just much smarter than facebook um was able to keep up with whatever efforts they were making and um uh and yeah so that's
1: are there any laws that were broken here? Because on one hand, you know, people are free to uh, try to. Uh portray their objects their 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 wares as, as positive as possible and that's not considered oh false a clear violation but this is a clear violation of, no? of
2: FTC rules about uh, fraudulent advertising yeah
1: so uh, who's liable here
2: so the FTC occasionally uh, makes uh, a case they busted a ring that in San Diego that was uh, selling you know uh, fraudulent diet pills they and made th- they had made 179 million dollars off of their uh, their scam um, but it's uh, it's you know it's it's a half-hearted effort on the regular agencies, a half-hearted effort on the part of the technology companies, and a great opportunity um, for all these uh, scammy marketers.
1: This is an amazing story. I recommend everybody read it. The uh, main character, Grin, who's sort of the king of these, uh, these sort of shady advertisers and the in- intermediaries of them. Said that when he first realized how much money he could make, he almost felt ill with excitement.
2: Panic, he described. Panic, yeah. Right, yeah but right, was he minting right, money, and right. then it,
1: you know he tries to sort of pedal back and, and and wonder whether he should do something better with his life, and then. Uh, thinks better of that and thanks. what am I, a communist? Uh, Robert Friedman, thank you so much for being with me. Thank and, you so uh, much, Lisa. Yeah. Really, I recommend uh, people read the story. Robert Friedman, senior editor of the Projects and Investigations team for Bloomberg News. The story, How Facebook Helps Shady Advertisers Sell Fake Elon Smart Pills by Zeke Fox. There has been a lot of turnover in President Trump's cabinet. Uh, Mike Pompeo uh, going to be elevated, leading President Trump to nominate it Gina Haspel to replace Pompeo as C-A- CIA director. Here with us, Jack Devine, founding partner and president of the Ar- Arkin Group, also former acting director of the CIA and a uh, very familiar person with Gina Haspel. Jack, thanks so much for being here. So. Veena's been a very controversial pick. A lot of people have said that she was in charge of uh, torture programs, that she discarded evidence tied to videotapes. Uh, You want to be on record supporting her.
3: Absolutely. I've known her for many, many years. And I I think the first thing you think of is a professional. And frankly, even though I've known her, I can't tell you whether she would vote Republican or Democrat. She's in that category of so many of us that don't carry our politics into politics. Place, but when you look at the the panorama today of who's available here, you have someone who's been at the top of the operational directorate and now the top of the agency, and working apparently uh, very well with the Trump administration downtown, and uh, the workforce is very high on her. I think she's been painted in uh, as a, in more of a of, uh, as a symbol of something that is not a reality. I think the hearings are actually going to be very. Uh, conducive to straightening this out. I mean, I I think uh, the confirmation process, while a grueling one, I think that when the facts are surfaced, it's going to be far less dramatic and more understandable when they get down, as they are now getting down and asking specifics. I think she will show extremely well. And I also don't want to forget the fact, which I think is getting lost, how big a deal it is to have the first woman director of CIA. Because I, I watched deal? it over 40 years. It's really quite an amazing development.
1: Why is that a big deal?
3: Well, when I first joined the agency many years ago, the workforce had, uh, on our training class, 50 people, two women, none of them went in the operations. Today, half of the agency's operators are now women holding key positions that are reflective of the time. Um, but they've never been at the very top of the service. In fact, she'll be the only, the second person in the history of the agency that's been in the operational part that has made it all the way to become the director. The other was Dick Helms back in the 60s. I think that mindset of being a careerist and having those operational backgrounds steeped in it and at the policy level is critical today when we're looking at what Russia is doing, either meddling in elections and, Uh, taking out people with nerve agents, I mean, we got a really tough world. We better have somebody in that job that understands that world.
1: I want to pick up on the Russia point, because we did see earlier this week, President Trump uh, ejected 60 Russian diplomats over the UK poisoning incident. That was more than people had expected. How did you interpret this?
3: Well, I know the Russians will be livid. I mean, I I have seen uh, and seen Folks PNG'd, we call it, you know, persona non grata, you're thrown out. <laughs> I mean, people have kids, they have schools, they're running agents, they're doing business. They pack up, out of there, back home. It is a very disruptive thing. So the institutions, and my bet, uh, I don't have the names in front of me, but you can bet there's a high number of the 60 that are intelligence-oriented. Uh, so they are going to be losing capability. They're closing Seattle it's a big, it's a big deal and a big blow, and then it, it creates such a uh, uh, an international development. The Russians will probably respond, so there's some toughening of the lines between. Uh, the Western allies in Russia, and I don't think this is a good, this is not going to play well for Putin over the long haul.
1: So uh, one theory was that President Trump took a harder than expected stance uh, on Russia in order to sort of pledge allegiance to the allies in return for some support as uh, he goes ahead with ripping up the Iran deal. What do you make of that theory?
3: I don't put a lot of stock in, in that theory. I mean, You know, Tip O'Neill used to say politics is all local. I think uh, President Trump was looking at uh, the winds of war, if you will, and I I think the American people are starting to get increasingly uh, agitated and concerned about Russian behavior and are um, going back to a mindset that's more closer to uh, to the Cold War, which I think is most unfortunate, but, uh, Putin seems to be determined to push this, and I must say, my own estimate of, of uh, Putin, he would have been flattered. I thought he was a, a great strategist. Now I have great doubts about that. I, I really, really, yes, I have, I have changed my views, you know, the Economist magazine had him on the cover as a great chess player. I, I really, not even sure he's a good checkers player
1: whoa really interesting another uh checkers or chess player we're not sure kim jong-un and i'd love to get your opinion on the surprise visit to beijing uh what do you think that's about and is there any relationship between some of the tariff talk that we've heard between the us and china and this visit
3: well i think uh, first of all i would say kim is at least a good checkers player i mean they've been, <laughs> they've been playing this game for a long time where they move their programs forward and then where they get to a plateau they say well let's let's negotiate. So I'm for the negotiations. I've been urging it for a long time. Uh, you know, there's no real military option here. Uh, so you, you got to get back to the table. Who comes to the table? And uh, as you point out, the Chinese are a, a major factor. I think they're less so than many people realize in the sense that the Chinese had great influence for many, many decades. But the last 15, 20 years, it's less, but more than anybody else, certainly. And they can be uh, very helpful. Uh, I think the Chinese are um, are torn the, on this one, but I don't think they want to be left on the sidelines, so I think that's what we're looking at here. Uh,
1: just Taking a little bit of a step uh, back home, I'd love to just get your impression on some of the turnover that we've had in the White House cabinet uh, with John Bolton becoming national security advisor. A lot of people uh, were saying this brings us closer to having a war with Ian Bremmer saying that this was the single worst day for geopolitical risk in a long time. What's your take?
3: Well, I think, you know, again, there have been a number of changes, and this is very common, as you know, with new administrations. The end of the first year, there's usually significant trends. And normally, they move more to the center. If they're to the left, they'll move center-left. If they're to the right, they move center-right. And I think um, that's—and the bureaucracies themselves and the civil servants begin to gain more and more influence. And consequently, when I look at Pompeo, the move of Pompeo, who's been a very successful director of CIA and and a confidant of the president, and I don't think they knew each other very well when it started, is now going to be over at state. This is a good thing for the State Department. Gina, we talked about moving her up. You now have a a team that knows Trump, works with them, and I think they're pragmatists and realists. The Monkey, uh, the, the wrench. The,
1: <laughs> the person you have not mentioned. The, no, we're just going to say
3: <laughs> the tricky one here, and I, I must tell you, I'm sitting back and looking at it, doesn't seem to fit as, uh, as, as Bolton. And I, I wish I knew him uh, and could size it up face to face. But on the surface, my big concern with the administration early on, it looked like the neocons might be making their way back into the White House. And that stopped.
1: Yeah. Now
3: until I, now. Until, now I worry. Whether if Bolton sticks to his yeah. position, whether or not we're going to see a a, 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 yeah. a more Jack Devine. move to that.
1: We're going to have to leave it there. Founding partner and president of the Arkin Group, also a former acting CIA chief. Another grocery store uh, chain, Southeastern Grocers, Chaptered for uh, filed for Chapter Eleven. Bankruptcy today in Delaware. Delaware. It is similar in some ways to Claire's Stores and Toys R Us in that it has a lot of debt linked to a 2005 buyout. And uh, here to kind of draw the links together for us is Jared Dillian, a columnist for Bloomberg View. Jared, thank you so much for being with us. He is also an editor and publisher of the Daily Dirt Nap. Jared, can you talk a little bit about how we should sort of view the growing volume of bank? bankruptcies that we've seen with LBO financed or, or bought uh, out companies um, like Claire's like Toys R Us yeah, like no, now I, Southeastern I, Grocers
0: I you know I think I think that you know it's, it's just a small trickle at this point but the alarming thing is is that you know we're really at the top of the expansion um and we're seeing some of these bankruptcies and You know, usually that's not when you see uh, bankruptcies like these. Now, the retail environment has changed a lot for Claire's and Toys R Us and also for groceries. But you shouldn't be seeing these deals fall apart at the top of the cycle.
1: So what do you make of that?
0: Well, you know, I think if you look at some of these individual deals, uh, it's just too much debt. And, you know, in the case of Claire's, uh, they had over $2 billion. and this is not – it's not a big business. You know, uh, $2 billion is a lot. I, I just – I think from an outsider looking in, it just doesn't pass the common sense test. Uh, Toys R Us had $400 million going out the door every year in interest expense. I mean, this is – you know, it, it depends on what your philosophy of debt is. What it, A lot of people think that businesses should borrow as much as they possibly can – without going bankrupt to maximize profits.
1: So you're, the, the, the title of your column was private equity. It's more like pirate equity. And you seem to place the blame on private equity companies for basically forcing these companies to incur as much debt as they have. You know, a lot of people would say private equity companies have some misses. This is to be expected, but they need a lot more wins in order to deliver good profits. Explain why yeah, you think I mean, that they're kind of the villain here.
0: I, I think I think the issue here is really one of public opinion. I think that the private equity industry has to be careful. Um, you know, after the Toys R Us deal, I saw some uh, you know left leaning stuff on social media, just blaming the private equity companies for thirty three thousand job losses, which is not trivial. And if we have a recession. If we have an honest to goodness downturn and we get more P.E. deals fall apart and more layoffs, it is going to point back directly at the private equity industry. Um, So really like the point of the piece was about how public opinion can turn on an industry very fast. And I think we're already seeing the beginnings of that.
1: And, And this sort of is analogous to what we saw with Wall Street after the 2008 financial crash, I'm wondering what will be the implication if, say, there is a rash of private equity-sponsored companies that do go bankrupt and that uh, does do result in many job losses. What will be the consequences if public opinion sours? Is it more regulation?
0: Well, I don't, I don't, I don't see how regulation would really uh, benefit the situation. But I think that. You know, this—it's not just Wall Street. It's the academic community. It's the CFA program. It it really is going to result in a sea change about how people think about debt and how it should be used. Um, Right now, people are using it to maximize profits. In the future, they might try to minimize debt in order to maximize safety. You know, one of the people I mentioned in the piece was. Dave Ramsey, and Dave Ramsey is a personal finance expert who has a following of millions of people, and he advocates at the consumer level to pay off your mortgage, to pay off your car loan, to pay off your credit card debts, and to live debt-free, and it's the corporate sector that is leveraged up massively while consumers have deleveraged
1: I guess what I was trying to get at is for Wall Street, the consequences of souring public opinion were huge fines, were more regulation, and frankly, a brain drain with a certain number of people who would have otherwise gone to Wall Street going to, say, Silicon Valley. What will be the sort of analogous consequence for private equity?
0: Well, you know, I think that, uh, you know, public opinion will turn against Private equity, much in the same way that it did in Wall Street, and it could result in a brain drain. It could, you know, it could result in the government talking about some, you know, reasonable limits that can be placed on debt. I really, you know, I can't speculate as to how it's going to turn out. I mean, I think that um, we're still probably a year or two away uh, from this cycle playing out.
1: Jared Dillian, thank you so much for being with us. It's really an interesting column. Jared Dillian, columnist with Bloomberg View, also editor and publisher of The Daily Dirtnap, an investment strategist also at Malden Economics. right now i want to turn the attention to deals there are a couple of big ones joining us now chris hughes deals columnist for bloomberg gadfly it's a commentary section for bloomberg view and bloomberg lp uh thank you so much for being with us chris uh i want to get your take i want to start with the uh GlaxoSmithKline and novartis deal it's a 13 billion dollar deal to buy some consumer brands from novartis this is already a joint venture shares of both companies went up how is this possible that it is so universally thought to be good for both of them?
4: Well, I think um, has uh, really gone up today and is up uh, a bit. Obviously, the, the market helps. I mean, for both sides, it gives them certainty. Um, for a while, they've been in this joint venture. Earlier this month, uh, Novartis gained the right to uh, sell its share of it to the Glaxo side. Everyone's been wondering, you know, when is that going to happen and what price? And so we know it's happening now and we know the price. So there's, I think, relief um, all around that we know what the size of this is. From Glaxo's perspective, there's a sort of double relief because um, the market also knows that if they're doing this, um, they're going to be a bit more constrained from doing other big deals. And the one that everyone's been focusing on is the possible uh, deal for Pfizer's consumer healthcare business. That could have cost up to 20 billion. So I think Blackstone shareholders in particular are thinking, well, we know what they're doing here with the, the joint venture buyout. They're probably not going to go for Pfizer in the short term. And I think that's uh, what's, what's pleasing Blackstone shareholders today.
1: So it's going to keep them from doing something stupid.
4: Well, in the short term, I mean, one would hope that shareholders are going to be on their toes here and, and keeping uh, management from doing something stupid, whatever. But um, certainly in the short term, this is, this, is a, this is a sort of big deal for Glaxo. But further out, um, they're probably going to be in quite a good space um, later in the year. They're also talking today about um, selling off some of the consumer brands um, uh, within this uh, within this business. So that's going to sort of shrink the deal a bit and they're talking too about um, exiting uh, but possibly exiting um, uh, their Indian subsidiary that would raise some money too so the 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 strain of this is certainly being offset by some other other sales they're planning.
1: Uh, let's talk about the other deal of the day, at least from my perspective. The Axo Noble deal. It's selling a its specialty chemicals unit to U.S. private equity firm Carlyle Group for about twelve and a half billion dollars. Um, so, can you describe a little bit about what Axo Noble is, and uh, give us your take on whether this price is too high or too low? Yep.
4: So, Nobel, big European paints and chemicals company, uh, it had uh, an unsolicited bid last year from PPG Industries uh, of the States. Uh, very, very bitter battle there, which uh, in the end saw PPG walk away. Now, this sale today of the uh, specialty chemicals business for 10.1 billion euros, about um, 12, 13 billion dollars, um, is actually part of, you know, really originates from that PPG bid. Uh, one of the key aspects of uh, of axos defense against the PPG approach was that it was going to split itself in two and finally here nearly a year on um, we've got uh, we've got that split taking place with this business being sold to um, to Carlisle and, and GIC uh, on the on the on the price well look, this is this is a price that has been achieved after a very long auction, lots of private, private equity firms interested in this you know, sort of asset they love, you know, yeah. unloved asset from a big company. Um, I, I, I did some maths on this a few weeks ago. It looks to me like a private equity owner at this price can probably double their money if they can sort of turbocharge the performance and you know, if they can get some cost out and, uh, and, and lift revenue a bit. You know, three years' time, they ought to be able to double their money on this.
1: And it caps a quarter of some pretty big buyouts. And I'm just wondering, uh, are we expecting to see another big Buyout quarter next.
4: I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, you've got, you've got um, private equity with a lot of dry powder. Yeah. We've seen some very ambitious deals in you know, Unilever's spreads. And in Europe, we've seen a uh, bid for, uh, for TDC from private equity and infrastructure investors. Clearly, there's an appetite out there. And um, if they can find in particular unloved assets in big corporates that uh, are available, they're going to go for them. And if necessary, yeah. they'll team up to do it, as, as uh, Carlisle's done here.
1: Chris Hughes, thank you so much for being with us. Chris Hughes is a deals columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly and uh, unloved or perhaps just uh, not quite as loved in this era of incredible amounts of cash uh, sitting in the coffers of private equity firms and big investment companies uh, looking for a place to go.